following content is provided by Mythgard Institute. Mythgard, making scholarly discussion of fantasy and science fiction literature free and open to everyone. All right, good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number seven of our Morgoth's Ring discussion. Good to be back with you tonight. Um, a lot of fun thinking about uh, Morgoth's Ring this uh, past week, I have to admit. I have to admit, I was a little surprised. So, as I think I've, I know, I know I've told you guys before, uh, this is, you know, our discussions here are the first time I've ever read the history of Middle-earth cover to cover to cover. I mean, I've never just, like, sat down and plowed through the entire series before. Generally, I've used it in the past as a scholarly resource. I've, like, looked stuff up, and there, there are parts, of course, that, that, that I've read, but a lot of parts... Um, I, you know, I, again, I didn't read through from cover to cover, or at least it's been a long time since I'd read them, many of them. Uh, and uh, in particular, this first half of Morgoth's Ring uh, is one that I, I hadn't reviewed in a long time. And uh, anyway, so this has all been really kind of fun uh, to me. So here's the thing. Um, I, uh, as I mentioned last time, you know, this has been kind of a slog Uh in in places, you know, uh, especially phase one of the Quinta in some ways, kind of going back over the same material again. And, you know, as we're noticing last week, and we're going to finish it up this week, um, that, you know, there's, there's a lot of interesting tidbits there, and we're, we've been tracing some interesting themes and everything and watching that go. Uh, but, you know, it's not been like absolutely the most page-turning section of the entire series of Middle-earth that we've ever talked about. You know, like, it's just, uh, it's just not, that's, it, it's been many things, but it hasn't been that. Uh, and uh, so, imagine my surprise. The first half of, the first part, really, especially, of the Phase 2 section really kind of blew me away uh, because, of course, the, the the stuff on Elvish culture, right, is really cool. And like that's, of course, a bit that I went right to and read before. But this section before that, uh, the, the very opening of phase two, uh, which was the um, uh, the the business about the Valaquenta. Right. I, I, I probably must have read that at some point, but I I'm not even 100 percent sure I ever did because it's. Like, you know, the fifth time through that, you know, at least the fifth time through that material. And I hadn't ever been, like, researching that material before, so I might have skipped it. I don't know, but holy cow, it was like a, a, a more than a page turner. It was like a steamy tell-all. I mean, oh my goodness. I don't know if you guys had the same experience that I did. Uh, just like shocking revelation after shocking revelation. Oh, wow. So, whew, yeah, I get... um um. I, I'm looking forward uh, to getting to the the shocking uh, bits where, of course, Christopher Tolkien is getting all confessional, right, uh, and uh, revealing things about uh, his later reflections uh, on the uh, on the the Silmarillion editorial process uh, that are really really cool. So anyway, um, uh, that's um, yeah. That's that's <laughs> I'm I'm excited about that uh, 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 getting there. But we're gonna finish uh, phase one first, and yeah, Zach boy, it is a challenge uh, to keep the timeline uh, in place, right? Um, the 
second phase stuff, the like, general rule of thumb, my sense is here, I, I believe, again, Christopher, of course, as he freely admits, is guessing on a lot of these dates because the, the material he's working with here is just like multiple layers of revisions on top of, you know, draft after draft material and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so it's crazy to try to figure out exactly when, you know, to date with accuracy any of these layers really precisely. But, um, uh, but there's... Um, Anyway, uh, he's trying to group it together so that what he's calling phase one is basically the stuff from the Quinta that Tolkien was revising in like the early 50s, like right around 5051. Um, and phase two is when Tolkien returns to it. So remember, the middle of the 50s is the publication time of The Lord of the Rings, right? So. The early 50s material, like 1950, 1951, that's the last writing of new stuff, right? Before he was spending all of his extra time preparing the manuscript of The Lord of the Rings for publication. So, the, so the, you know, the couple of years up before 1954, that's what he was doing, right? And then, of course, you've got the publication and you've got the frantic work on the appendices, uh, the... the uh, publication of the return of the king was delayed a little bit right because of the preparation of the appendices uh and then of course right after he was still kind of caught up um in um thinking about lord of the Rings stuff and answering questions about lord of the Rings stuff and being surprised at the popularity of the lord of the rings and all that kind of thing so he doesn't get back to the silmarillion stuff until late 50s like 1958 ish um so phase so there is a gap of time between phase one and phase two um early 50s to late 50s. So it's a it's a, a big gap, bigger than most of the gaps uh, that we've been seeing. In fact, if you think about it, it's only a little bit smaller than the gap between the 1937 Quinta that when back when he was first preparing the Silmarillion for publication, right, right before he started work on the sequel, the stuff we were looking at in the Lost Road uh, volume. And the, and between that and phase one, right, the like revision of the Aino Indole and, you know, the round earth stuff, right, all that, you know, when he first comes back to the Silmarillion stuff after the Lord of the Rings, there's almost, there's only a little bit more time in that huge gap during which the composition of the Lord of the Rings took place than there is in this later gap, right, uh, that, that uh, spans the publication time of the Lord of the Rings. Um so, uh, anyway, uh, I, but yeah, boy, the phase two stuff, really cool. So we'll get there. Uh, we'll get there, uh, this evening, I am hoping. Um, but before I go too much further, I didn't actually create a good question, uh, do the announcements yet, which I totally should do. Uh, so first announcement last night, I did my state of the university address, uh, for spring of 2020 which is kind of a big thing. That is like spring of 2020 is kind of a big thing, uh, uh, a big moment in the history of Signum University. So this is uh, more than a kind of a routine update about, um, you know, what's been happening lately at Signum. I am talking about what's happening lately at Signum and what's happening right now at Signum. But uh, it's, uh, I, as I say, it's a little bit more than just that. Um, so... I definitely commend that. That's up on YouTube. If you missed it, uh, you can find it on YouTube. Of course, it's on our uh, Twitch videos as well, but you can also find it on the Signum. Go to the Signum University YouTube channel and you should see it uh, pinned pretty much up to the top there. So um, I definitely recommend that if you didn't get a chance to see it. Uh, we are 
uh, excited about the path, the Signum Path program. Signum Path uh, is we just opened that for registration officially for the begin for the first time here. Um, and uh, Signum Path is officially launched. I've announced that a couple times. Just wanted to draw your attention back to the uh, uh, to that website. I should have that somewhere here. I always misplace it in the many things I have open here, but it's uh, it's somewhere. I can't remember. Um, anyway, oh yeah, there it is. Oh, hang on, behind the other tab. There, there it is. Um, so anyway. I just wanted to uh, to make sure to uh, uh, to to mention it because obviously that's a really huge deal um, uh, to join us in our brand new uh, program uh, that we have uh, going on here. Let me bring that over here. Oh, in the meantime, one other thing uh, that I also wanted to make sure not to forget um, is it is election time here at the Mythgard Academy. Uh, so for those of you who are in our Council of the Wise, which is uh, I, the a collection of uh, Signum's core supporters, everybody who donates $100 a year or more is part of our Council of the Wise and gets to vote on which books we talk about next. Um, now we've long since reached the point where we're assuming we're going to continue with the... Um, uh, uh, with the, You know, we've been doing... You know the, the the long-standing rule for the Mythgard Academy is that we don't do an, uh, two books by any one author in a row, which generally has meant every other book is a non-Tolkien book. Essentially, has been in practice what that has meant uh, over the last golly seven years that we've been doing the Mythgard Academy now. Um, so, and again, for now, for some time, as we've been marching through the history of Middle Earth, that one has been fairly well determined. But the real excitement is what will our next book be, right? What will our non-Tolkien book? We will presume that we're going to proceed on to the War of the Jewels uh, after Morgoth's Ring. But in between those two, because we can't do them both in a row, in between those two, we will do some non-Tolkien book. Uh, and uh, I am always keen to see uh, what gets elected. Keep in mind, of course, I do not choose them. I've never chosen them. Uh, these are elected by our folks, and I am delighted to... Um, uh, I am I am excited to see what you guys choose. Um, so the, actually, the email just went out. I saw it just go out like minutes before class started. So uh, you guys should be able to uh, uh, should be able to uh, to to see that there. Um, uh, now you could argue, Chris, you're right that the, you could argue that the history of Middle Earth books are by two authors. But uh, yeah, no, it's still subject to the rule. Yeah, no, sorry, it counts. It counts. Um, uh, yeah, there it is. <laughs> exactly. James just looking at his email, and there it is. Um, so, yeah, the criteria for nominating books, it can be any book. Um, uh, the, basically, the way that the nomination process works, there's a, you, you'll see there's a link in the email. Um, so if you check your email, uh, you'll find a link for the, the forum where uh, books are nominated. Um, there will be a, a, a preliminary vote among the council to choose the slate, right? To choose the finalists uh, that uh, will then go out to the whole electorate and then the entire electorate uh, is everybody who has made a donation of any size uh, is going to uh, be able to vote uh, to see who wins. And there are often surprises. Um, yeah. 
Right, exactly, James. No other Christopher Tolkien books between history, uh, between the history of Middle-earth books either. That's right. It's the cruel restriction that we're operating under. Um, that's right. So, um, yeah, anyway, that's, um, uh, that's, uh, yeah, yeah, that's where we, that's where we are. Um, and, uh, just so, yeah, so prepare yourself for that. Um, it can be, yeah, it can be anything. Uh, uh, there's no restrictions really on, uh, what the book should be. Um, there are, yeah, we'll say, I'm not going to say any more. I'm not going to say any more because I don't want to appear to be uh, biasing things. But uh, yeah, there we go. Um, excellent. Excellent. Um, ah, I see. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No, that would be an interesting nomination. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Again, I'm not going to comment because who knows? Who knows what's going to happen? And it has been. Uh, not only are all the books that we've done not of my own personal choosing, um, but there have been a there have been occasions on which uh, a book has been nominated that I'd never even read before, uh, uh, as as of course was um, uh, most notably the case uh, in uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, which I'd never read before we uh, did our discussion on it. It was fantastic. So glad uh, to have read that and gotten the chance to discuss it with you guys. Uh, that was really fun. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly, Anna. We actually had done one that I'd never even read before. Um, uh, it is true that I theoretically have a veto. Uh, there are some books I'm not going to be cornered into doing, uh, but I've never used it. <laughs> it's, 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 it's never come to that. Uh, so we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. See, Yana, you guys always tease me about Twilight, but I'll do it. I dare you. Elect Twilight. We'll talk about it. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm not going to turn away from that. Um, but, um, oh yeah, Stephen says, unfortunately, Susanna Clark's next book won't be out in time to nominate for this round. Yeah. Yeah. I know that that was, uh, I've been hearing rumors that that's been coming. Uh, so that'll be, uh, that'll be, that'll be interesting. Nancy, am I still allowing non-book formats too? I don't see why not. Um, I mean, it would be, the one thing that would be hard is if it were like a film, um, it, there would just wouldn't be as much to talk about because, you know, a film is, you know, a feature film is not really the equivalent of, of a, of a novel. It's sort of the equivalent of a short story as far as, you know, so it would be like doing a short story. We could do a fun session or two, uh, on a film, but it wouldn't be, um, um, I, I just, I don't think I would, it, it wouldn't be quite the same, uh, in that way. But like if somebody wanted to, you know, if, if, if the electorate decided, you know, that, uh, they wanted to talk about like a season of a television show or something, I'd do that. Um, you know, I'm willing to go there. I will say, like, footnote on that thing. Um, if that happened, it's going to make it awful hard, actually, uh, to have our recordings on YouTube. Because, of course, I'm going to have to show clips or at least images. Uh, and usually that causes the, uh, the friendly bots at Google to flag and take down our video because they think we're just trying to scam the, video, the movie. Uh, which, of course, we're not, but the bots can't tell. So... Uh, anyway, um, uh, <laughs> several people trying to fish for what book I would veto. I'm not going to tell you. Nope. Not going there. <laughs> no, you'd have to see. You'd have to see. Um, yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The copyright issues with film clips are really a challenge. Um, but, um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Do I have any in mind, though, Kevin? Yeah, I do. I do. But I'm not telling you what they are. I haven't had nearly enough to drink to admit to that. Anyway, um, so let me get back. As I was saying, I, I finally uncovered in the midst of all my windows that are open on my other screen, our Signum Path uh, uh, website. So just to, to draw your attention back to this, please do share this with folks. This is uh, our new program that we're really excited about uh, that I think can be a really, really big benefit to lots of people, both to individuals, to corporations, um, as a resource for HR and training folks who want to uh, have a resource to be able to help the folks in their companies, all to build foundational skills, to help improve your writing skills, improve your communication skills, improve your emotional intelligence and, uh, and other kind of career-oriented skills, the kinds of things that will help you to get ahead in any kind of job that you have. Um, and there's a, there's a real gap. And honestly, the kind of training that's available out there for these kinds of skills, well, it's often, it's done usually in a corporate training model, you know, like asynchronous videos and stuff like that. And you just, you just can't learn to write that way. You just can't. Um, you know, we are uh, offering these as courses from a from a humanities perspective because, you know, classically over the centuries it has been the humanities where these kinds of skills have been traditionally developed, and there's a good reason for that. The humanities are the best tools for this. Um, uh, so. Anyway, yeah, Christopher, that's a wonderful idea. Suggesting it to uh, uh, to church leadership, it would be it would be really fun to do this uh, to like do it do a you know a, a group for a church group or something. That'd be great. Um, but um, anyway, this is um, uh, this is. Uh, 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 this is our, our new program. I definitely commend our site to you. I've shown you our website a couple times. We have a, a bunch of new pages on here, much more information, uh, which you can see if you want to get more information about our individual program. Um, when I say that we're opening registration, I'm, I'm referring ex explicitly there to our individual program. The way that that works is we offer uh, rounds of our courses every month. So starting in June, we're, we're offering our very first classes in June, but we're offering courses every month uh, uh, thereafter in a, in, a, in a fairly regular cycle. Um, but of course, we also do customized uh, corporate uh, courses um, where, again, if we have a group uh, that uh, wants to come together and do the classes together from a particular company, we'll customize those for that group. And of course, that we don't we're not sticking to our regular schedule. Again, we customize it, so we'll work that out uh, with uh, the the company team uh, uh, separately. So, with our corporate liaison who'll be assigned to them. So, anyway. Uh, Great program. I think, as I say, I think this is going to be a great opportunity for folks. So please just uh, uh, let folks know. Help us spread the word about Signum Path because it's brand new and it is pretty awesome. So, okay. Um, very good. I think I'm consulting my list of announcements to make sure that I'm not forgetting other announcements because that's like our, those are our big announcements that I wanted to, that I definitely wanted to share. Um, uh, I did, of course, wanted to mention also the way I knew there was another thing. Of course, we've started our fall or fall summer semester this term. Uh, this ter 
I'll come in on that sentence again. We started our summer semester this week. How about that? That's exactly what happened um, on Monday. So our classes have begun for the summer. We have uh, our Old Norse class, our new Star Wars class, really uh, great classes this semester. We have um, one of the highest enrollments we've ever had. I think the highest number of credit students we've ever had uh, at Signum University this summer. Um, it's amazing. And it puts the capstone on the year this past academic year, 2020 to 20, no, 2019 to 2020 uh, academic year uh, has been, we've had more credit enrollments this past year than we've ever had in a single academic year in our nine year history now. So uh, really exciting time, even, uh, you know, not only for our new program, Signum Path, um, and the planning for future programs down the road, as I was discussing last night, but also in our existing program, our existing MA program is uh, uh, reaching new heights that it never has before. And our uh, uh, selection of classes for this summer is a great illustration of what's exciting in our master's degree program right now. So there's still time to join. Uh, if you've been thinking about auditing or, or uh, even thinking about uh, taking a class for credit this semester, not too late. You can still join up through next week. Um, but uh, sooner, at this point, sooner is definitely better. So um, uh, I just wanted to make sure uh, to announce that. All right. Um, let, us, uh, let us move forward then uh, so that I can get to the steamy, juicy details uh, there at the beginning of phase two, which I found so very delightful. Um, not to say, again, that this earlier stuff isn't delightful, um, uh, because there, there are still a, a, a several threads that I am particularly interested in pursuing. And who knows, maybe, you know, I've talked about how, like, some of the things, that, some of the, uh, the, the, the elements and concepts in the, in the developing story that Christopher Tolkien is clearly most interested in are not exactly the ones that I'm most interested in. So for all I know, you guys are thinking the same thing about me and are like, oh, can we... Are we, can we be done talking about whether or not he's, you know, Melkor's creating orcs or not? Um, well, no. No, I can't be done talking about that. That's one of the themes I'm really interested in, in, uh, uh, in, uh, in tracing. But here's another interesting one, uh, which really began to obtrude itself upon my notice uh, pretty significantly here in this section that we're going to start talking about tonight. That is the, the latter half of phase one. Um, here's the passage. The sons of Fingolfin were Fingon, who was after king of the gnomes, changed to Noldor, in the north of the world, and Turgon of Gondolin, and their sister was Isfin, changed to Irith the White. Added, she was younger in the years of the Eldar than her brethren, and when she was grown to full stature and beauty, she was greater and stronger than woman's wont, and she loved much to ride on horse and to hunt in the forests, and there was often in the company of her kinsmen and the, and there was often in the company of her kinsmen. No, right, and right, like there she was. When she was there, she was often... Okay, sorry, I'm getting my emphasis right. And there was often in the company of her kinsmen, the sons of Fanor. Uh, but to none was her heart's love given. She was called the White Lady of the Noldor, for though her hair was dark, she was pale and clear of hue, and she was ever arrayed in silver and white. The sons of Finrod, changed to Finarfin, were Inglor, changed to Finrod, the faithful, who afterwards was named Felagund, lord of caves, Struckout and Oradreth, and Angrod, and Egnor, changed to Eignor. And these four, 
Change to three. Uh, the sons of Finrod, or, dro- or excuse me, Finarfin, dropping like flies. Uh, and these three were as close in friendship with the sons of Fingolfin as though they were all brethren together. A sister they had, Galadriel, the fairest lady of the house of Finway and the most valiant. Her hair was lit with gold, as though it had caught in a mesh the radiance of Laurelin. Okay. Several things of interest there. Uh, Let's start, of course, with the final thing, uh, and one of the most sort of obviously uh, striking, and that is the inclusion of Galadriel. It's, of course, one of the things, one of the the kind of minor notes, uh, but but which I think is always of interest, to see those places where he is actually retconning the Lord of the Rings characters into the Silmarillion tradition, right? We've seen that in some very minor ways with Cirdan the Shipwright, who was not invented before, but only came up during the Lord of the Rings. We've seen that in some very interesting but very limited ways with Aloran, right, with Gandalf. Um, We were just looking at one of those passages last week. Um, And, of course, Galadriel. Galadriel, possibly the most dramatic uh, of these retcon elements. Dramatic in the sense that he, um, uh, she is one of the most important characters of the Lord of the Rings, who, in retrospect, needs to be one of the most important characters of the Silmarillion. Let me rephrase that. Of the characters in the Lord of the Rings, who were also present historically during the Silmarillion, she is the most important of those, right? I mean, if she's going to be the daughter of Finarfin, that puts her right smack in the middle of the action, right, of the Silmarillion. You can't say that about people like Gandalf or Círdan, um, uh, you know, or, or Saruman or, or whoever, right? They're not right smack in the middle of the action. Sauron is too, but that has been already a retcon that he's been working on, especially as we saw back during the Numenorean stuff uh, in the Notion Club papers and such. Um, so, okay. Um, uh, all right. So, yeah, so so Galadriel. So whenever she comes up, you know, any of them, but of course, with this, especially her, it's sort of particularly interesting. Um, now, first, notice one thing about Galadriel, about Galadriel's mention here, right? And that is, she gets superlatives. Right now, they're relative superlatives. They're not the absolute superlatives uh, that we sometimes see. Right, uh, like the ones that, like the one that Thingol gets. He was the tallest of all of the children of Iluvatar, or the one that Luthien gets. Right, fairest of all. You know, uh, it, you know, she's the most beautiful. Um, and of course, Fanor hoards this the superlatives like a dragon on its hoard. Right, um, so. We get those, right? And Galadriel's not getting those. She is the fairest lady of the House of Finway and the most valiant. So, you know, they're not like big, big superlatives. Um, She's not the fairest of all of the elves, because then she'd be competing with Luthien. Um, And she's not called the most valiant of everybody, right? But see, those two are taken already, right? Luthien is already the fairest lady, Right, can't. Sorry, she. I mean, Galadriel's awesome, but she can't could knock. She's not going to knock Luthien off that pedestal, right? Um, and she can't be the most valiant because uh, Fingolfin is already, uh, you know, listed uh, for his uh, being uh, the the most valiant of the House of Finway. So we can't get there. 
Yes, Kevin, exactly. Turin Turinbar is going to get the hottest human ever title. Absolutely. Yeah, Turin is going to have his own collection of superlatives. You will notice a trend, of course, between purple people who get lots of superlatives and people who kind of end up being rather bad eggs, right? I mean, you've got, uh, uh, you know, you've got like Turin and uh, Feanor and like Melkor, right, all on an island kind of together there. Um, but... Um, yeah, but Yana, exactly. It is the problem with absolute superlatives is that you can only use them once. Absolutely, and this, of course, is one of the clear challenges. And another one of those place, well, another one of those places that we've seen before, where Tolkien has to, where he has to make choices, right? When, again, in 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 this whole marriage of the Lord of the Rings world and the Silmarillion world that he's been doing. Um, one of the things that we've been talking about that he is sort of struggling with, right, is wanting to maintain, on the one hand, his commitment to his mythology, right, and the stories that he's been telling, while at the same time, on the other hand, to try to stay true to the consistently built w world, the kind of consistently built world, uh, not to mention the specific world uh, that he was building during The Lord of the Rings. Um, and that, of course, has been the central issue with things like the orc uh, issue that we've discussed several times. Um, here, we see a similar thing, but it's but it's 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 not exactly the same, right? This is like a clash between the new myths and the old myths, right? Goadriel, really important, right? And where she grows to over the course of the Lord of the Rings, right? From like the queen of those random elves, you know, that he uh, has the company meet uh, on the road on the road as he did not anticipate, right, uh, between Rivendell and Mount Doom. Um, you know, Goadriel is, is absolutely in that category of a funny thing happened on the way to Mount Doom, right? Um, anyway, but she grows into something really big and really important. And yet, when we get to go back and put her in the Silmarillion, there's a lot of really big, important people. And Yana, exactly as you say, somebody's claimed dibs on all of the superlatives already. And so he has to, um, uh, he absolutely has to do one of two things. He either has to have Goadriel look fairly small on the Silmarillion stage, right? Either she's got to look like an extra, right? Or he's got to bump people off their pedestals, um, which is going to mean making some really big fundamental changes. Now, it's not as as big, right? Even, I mean, okay, even going so far as displacing Luthien, that would be big. Not saying that's not big, but even that is, in a sense, less big than, like, the round world thing, right? That this, I mean, it's this is not, we're not talking about a fundamental shift to how he conceives of his mythology working, right? We're just talking about a change in characters. Now, again, like the Luthien thing would be huge, and he doesn't really seem to contemplate that. Um, but, um, uh, uh, but anyway, um, it is interesting that he is inclined to throw some... They're second-rate superlatives, arguably third-rate superlatives, right? Because she's being... The superlatives that she's being given are not only within the House of Finway, right? So, therefore, eliminating her from competition uh, with, like, Luthien. Um, but also, Lady is there, right? So we've got a gender uh, thing also. 
Um, so, like, of the women in the House of Finway, she was the fairest and the most valiant. And that's, you know, beginning to be a kind of a smaller pool, right, that she is standing out in. Now, Yana, I agree with you um, that uh, this does really play well into the general fading theme, right? To show her be... The level of superlatives that she's getting here show that she is even on stage with all of the rest of the cast of the Silmarillion. She's still striking, right? She's not a nobody. She, she, she's not an extra. She's, you know, no, she's not going to get any nominate. You know, she, she, if she gets any nominations, it'll be for best supporting actress, right? She's not, she's not the leading lady here um, in this particular play, but again, but she's not an extra either. And it does set things up, Yana, and it certainly does fit, right, within the whole kind of mythological framework of the Lord of the Rings, that by the time we get to the Third Age um, and things have been fading and declining, that now she is, she should be at that point, right, uh, getting some really big superlatives, especially in the Middle-earth context. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I know Galadriel isn't third class, Carrie. I don't really mean that. I said she's given third class superlatives. That's all. You know, but it's still a superlative, right? I mean, it can't take away from the fact that it's still a superlative. Um, uh, and yes, Tony, it's true that everybody else is dead or gone. I know, but that's the point, right? It's. I don't mean that as a backhanded compliment. Like, congratulations, you win, like, person who didn't happen to die award, right? Um but first of all, that's not nothing, right? I mean, that's a significant accomplishment in the context. But secondly, um, uh, it's um, at, but but again, more than that, that's what the fading means, right? Is that everyone else uh, is that everyone else has gone? That's like the definition of fading. Um, okay. Anyway, so that's the first thing. Now, notice the second thing about Galadriel there. Her hair. We had a whole sentence about Galadriel's hair. Her hair was lit with gold as though it had caught in a mesh the radiance of Laurelin. Why why do we get a sentence about Galadriel's hair? Anybody else's hair we get a sentence about? A whole sentence dedicated to their hair color? Not just color, obviously. There's much more to it than that. No. Yeah, this is totally because of Gimli. It's absolutely Gimli's fault that we because remember that all came first. Like you can't, um, you know, when we're studying this, we always have to keep in mind the sequence here, right? Um, it, Gimli does not ask for a, a, a lock of her hair uh, or, or a single one of her hairs, right? Because of this passage, right? This passage is there because Gimli asked for her hair. So we've got her hair being a big deal, but notice the kind of big deal it is, right? What, uh, what, what, what kind of big deal is it? What is, it's not just that something is being said about it. That's in, interesting all by itself, right? Most of the rest of the people, we don't even know what their hair color is, right? It's not important in the story, right? Um, but what else? Yes, the link to Laurelin. It ties it to the trees. How? Notice how? Her hair was lit with gold. Notice he doesn't say her hair was lit with gold 
like the blossoms of Laurelin, right? Or that's not what he says. As though it had caught in a mesh the radiance of Laurelin, right? Exactly. Her hair is like, it's like a, it's like a, it's, it's like a Silmaril, right? It's like a, it's like a, the, a, a budget Silmaril or like a natural Silmaril, really, right? It's amazing. I mean, that's, a, this is a huge deal that Galadriel's hair should be like the Silmarils themselves, right? It is as though it had caught in a mesh the radiance of Laurelin. Right. So that Gimli and why should that be? Why should that be? Because Gimli's gonna put it in imperishable crystal, of course. Right? We already have the the visual picture of Goadriel's hair encased in imperishable crystal, right? As an heirloom which will be guarded jealously by Gimli and his and his heirs after him, right? Uh, I mean, it's, um, it's, it's, yeah, yeah. Oh, and absolutely, Yana, there is, um, um, I, I mean, if, if it makes you think of Sif's hair uh, from Norse mythology, yeah, sure, no accident. I mean, I, I don't think that that's a, uh, I, I don't think that Gimli's request of her hair is utterly unrelated uh, to that. I mean, I think that that's clearly one of those things in the back of Tolkien's mind. Um, but, uh, y- Tony, exactly. We have, like, the Arkenstone recreated, essentially, right? The Arkenstone, which is already itself a kind of, a kind of, like, diet Silmaril, right? Um, and, uh, well, I mean, really, it was a recycled Silmaril, obviously, in The Hobbit, before The Hobbit was made continuous. And notice what happens to the Arkenstone after, the Hobbit world is really brought into contact with the Silmarillion, with the Silmarillion world. We never mention it again, <laughs> right? Like it's Ixnay on the. Well, I can't. You can't really do Arkenstone uh, in uh, Pig Latin, can you? But anyway, um, uh, so really interesting, right? Really interesting that that he is associating, in a sense, right? He is associating Goadriel and Feanor through the concept of the Silmarils, right? But of course it's different because this is her hair, right? I mean, she doesn't, it's, it's not like as, you know, she is like one of the, uh, one of the Noldor who like, you know, invented like with the, with, with Noldor and cunning, uh, you know, a hair dye, which, which affected this, right? This is just her hair, right? So it's, 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 it's not, it's not in that way, of course, parallel to, um, uh, to to Feanor, uh, but um, uh, but anyway, uh, she is um, uh, exactly Bruce. Yeah, they buried it with Thorin, and we will never speak of it again. <laughs> apparently, uh, but anyhow, yeah. Um, so, <laughs> right, John says. So that's what they did with the vats of light. Yeah, exactly. She used to go down for uh, weekly treatments. Uh, you know, get her roots done uh, from the vats of uh, of, of Laurelin. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. That didn't happen. Um, again, so this is just her hair. But so he gives her superlative. So uh, what has happened in the integration of Galadriel? Very little is said about her here, right? Um, uh, she's being given uh, discount superlatives, 
right? And her hair is being made in t- is, is is like she gets a sentence, right, about her hair. One of those Lord of the Rings elements is being brought back. Um, uh, is 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 being brought into play here, um, and starting to be connected with some of the core mythological elements. That hair sentence uh, is to me really interesting in this way because she was. We saw her added in to the early. I'm pretty sure it was in the annals um, when we got the speech of Fanor under Torchlight, right when he moves the uh, Noldor to rebel and to leave Tyrion. Um, and we got the, that was one of the first places where Galadriel was really retconned back into the story. And we're told that she also, though, like she didn't have any truck with Fanor, was was moved, right? And she too desired maybe to have a realm of her own, right? So we, we got her worked into that, um, into the story. That his impulse, but but nevertheless, she was, she was kind of a writer, Right. You know, like I mean, writer in the legal sense, like a clause added at the bottom. Right. Um, Of the contract. Right. Uh, She was there's a there's a little bit of uh, of she she was a little bit of an appendage on that one. But here. The business about her hair, which starts with Gimli's request, is now here being worked into the mythological structure of the Silmarillion story. Right? I mean, her hair is like a Silmaril, and that is the seed of a thing, right? Which I think is really interesting. And Tony, you're right. It does make her a kind of anti-Luthien. Um, uh, Luthien's hair is like a shadow following, right? Luthien is shadow and she is light. You know, it's like the two of them um, could have like a Marvel spinoff series or something. Yes, exactly. Very, very different. Very opposite uh, from her. Um yeah, yeah. And Jocelyn, you're right. It is also a typical gender stereotype um, that females defined by appearance and physical characteristics. Yes. The fact that the first superlative, even if it's a third rate superlative that she's given is fairest. Right. She's the most beautiful. Hey, nothing wrong with that. Right. That's fine. But I agree. Now, she is called valiant as well. Right. And those two are an interesting pairing. Um uh, the fairest lady of the House of Finway and the most valiant, right? And so that is sort of singled out there, her valor as well as her beauty. But I certainly agree. Um, the, uh, the, the, the way that that does fall in line in that way. Um, yeah, so we'll see sort of what, um, what comes with that. And Jennifer, you're absolutely right that one of the, um, one of the concepts there, right? One of the... Um, uh, consequences, right, of the way that he is now integrating this 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 germ of an idea, which begins with Gimli's request, right, and is now beginning to take shape within the context of the Silmarillion mythology, does also retroactively elevate Gimli's request, right? It makes Gimli's request for a strand of her hair even. I, Gimli had no idea, really. I mean. Did Gimli know that he was making, uh, you know, a, like a DIY Arkenstone? No, that wasn't his plan, right? You know, he wasn't scheming at that. Um, but the way that this has worked out, yeah, in retrospect, now it looks like that, right? Um, and you're absolutely right, Matt, that uh, Aemir and Gimli do point it out. Aemir and Gimli's near competition, right? The sort of... Um, uh, 
that very Arthurian moment, which I always find so delightful uh, at the end of the Lord of the Rings, um, Aemir and Gimli's uh, uh, near duel, right? Um, the contrast between Arwen, who is like the second Luthien, right? Uh, and Galadriel um, is, we, we can see, so even within the context of the Lord of the Rings, this idea of Luthien and Galadriel as kind of opposite pairings, right? The seed of that is clearly there already in Aemir's words about, um, uh, about Arwen, the queen, and Galadriel. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, okay. Oh, hang on, but I'm, hang on, I'm not done about this. Just, uh, first of all, notice... Um, this looks to be about the place when Oradreth is starting to get his demotion, right? Um, so Oradreth's name is getting crossed off lists. Now, really hard to tell exactly when, you know, he's, he, Christopher is clearly suggesting that the crossing out of Oradreth dates from this period, right? Um, that it, this is the time in which Tolkien begins to have uh, questions. You remember Oradreth originally... Um, was the original Lord of Nargothrond. Like, Finrod wasn't even the Lord of Nargothrond. Um, Oradreth was the original Lord of Nargothrond. And then he's... Oradreth has been kind of getting demoted and demoted, even being knocked down to one of the lesser sons of Finarfin uh, was a demotion for him, and now he's getting apparently further demoted and removed from the list. Um... Notice how many sentences we get about Isfin, excuse me, I mean Irith, uh, of course, whom we know to be Aravel. She's one whose name is not yet settled. Of course, we see several people whose names are still not quite settled out to the place where we would uh, we ex expect them to be. Though they're getting there, right? Fin uh, Finrod changing to Finarfin, uh, Inglor changing to Finrod. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, So we'll we'll keep an eye on that. The Oradreth story is a minor sort of development, but it's it's kind of an interesting one to me, especially knowing the position that he played before. And when I say position that he played, I don't just mean like the fact that he happened to be put in charge of Nargothrond. I mean in the story, in the important stories uh, that Tolkien was telling, in particular the children of Hurin, the, the the children of Hurin. Oradreth's like the high water mark for Oradreth. Uh, was I think uh, the uh, the the alliterative lay of the children of Hurin? Um, uh, it was a big deal, right? Uh, Oradreth was kind of a big deal, even though he was still a little namby pamby even there. But nevertheless, uh, that's, that was a character flaw, not a not a um, a prestige issue as far as Tolkien's planning is concerned. So, uh, but anyway, so it's a big deal, right? I mean, I talked about. Is he going to be willing to make changes, right? I mean, is he going to demote somebody else so that Galadriel can basically take that person's place within the mythology, right? Um, and although we see him not exactly doing that, we see him making some changes, which, again, though not as earth-shattering as, like, changing Luthien or something like that, is still, you know, a fairly big kind of deal. Um, and... Um, John, it is interesting. So the character of... Isfin. Let's just call her Isfin for now. Um, I don't want to conf... <laughs> probably not actually 
less confusing or more confusing to call her Arathel. But anyway, let's just call her the White Lady of of, of the Noldor, shall we? Um, what we're told about the what, what the White Lady of the Noldor does, as John points out, um, sound like like Diana, right? Sound like Artemis um, in in some ways. She's this uh, woman hunter, and her non married status, right? Uh, her, 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 her singleness is emphasized, right? To none was her heart's love given. So yes, we have this virgin huntress among, uh, among the Noldor and that that's interesting, right? It's interesting that he does this. And I would say as well, it's interesting to me that she gets all this text, right? Uh, and notice how he's added it in. Right. The original text was a list. The sons of Fingolf, uh, Fingolfin were Fingon, who was after King of the Gnomes in the north of the world, and Turgon of Gondolin. And their sister was Isfin the White. And then, right, skipping all the bits that he added, it then just goes to the sons of Finrod were Inglor the Faithful, who after was named Felagun, Lord of Caves, and Oradreth and Angrod and Egnor. Right. Um, in other words, he's not... In, in the original, when he originally writes it, he's not saying anything in particular about almost any of them, right? This is really just a catalog. And in the midst of this catalog, he adds this whole section about Isfin, right? About the White Lady. Um, and uh, that's kind of interesting to me. Interesting to me that he goes back and includes all this stuff. Um, and it is not because... It is not because... He then goes on to invent the the Aeol story, and now is like going back to set it up here, right? Or at least I think that can't be the only reason. And I say that because for two reasons: one, he's already invented the Aeols; a version of that existed before, so that's not like a whole new thing that's going to come around. Um, we had Isfin being involved in a sketchy marriage earlier on. Um, uh, and of course, we had Maeglin the traitor early on as well, uh, back in the Book of Lost uh, in the Book of Lost Tales. So, um, so that's not exactly a brand new development, which itself would explain why all of a sudden he's doing this. But the other thing is that okay, yeah. So, so yeah, she's going to get a future story, right? So are a bunch of these guys, right? So is Finrod for crying out loud, right? You know, I'd, 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 so is Ignor for the matter of that, right? Um, I remember it's this is right around the period when we're gonna, we're working towards the uh, uh, the Athrobath. So yeah, Ignor's got some storyline coming to him. Turgon, needless to say, um, and she he doesn't in, insert additions for on any of those, right? But it's her that he comes in on, and this will be the last thing I will say about this slide before we move on. Is an interesting trend that I'm noticing here. The two there are two women in this list, right? Numerically speaking, um, we've got, if you count Finarfin and Fingolfin, right? We've got Finarfin and Fingolfin, and then Fingon and Turgon, and then Finrod, and let's count Oradreth before he gets crossed out, and Angrod and Ignor, right? So we've got eight men and two women. Uh, so the women are only 20% by number of this description. But look at what percentage they are of the pros. And that's a little interesting to me. Um, and in this context, because, of course, my attention was piqued by the 
the fact that this was a paragraph uh, working Galadriel back in, but the fact that that happened and this extra sentence about her hair and stuff in the same paragraph as we got this added chunk of prose uh, added to give more background to Isfin, right, struck me as really kind of interesting. And it's a, a trend I began to notice after this. Um, just sort of reflecting, we get a lot more lady folk. Uh, in the House of Finway, uh, we get the, the, a lot of there's a there's a whole bunch of female Noldor running around uh, in the story that were certainly not there in the Book of Lost Tales, and that's an interesting thing. And let's sort of see um, see how this see how this goes and continues. In the meanwhile, let's actually uh, move on. So. Um, this is one of Christopher's notes. The passage describing the White Lady of the Noldor was added on a slip to the original uh, Quenta Silmarillion typescript, uh, that is the QS1 typescript, and this slip is a page from a used engagement calendar dated October 1951. And you know that kind of thing. That's like the kind of thing that makes a textual editor just like punch the air. Like, yes! Oh, a dated engagement calendar! Like, the, like of all the things his dad could have written this on and shoved it in the manuscript. It was something with a date on it. Oh, that is gold right there. Gold. Um, but anyway, at that stage, her name was still Isfin. A rejected draft for this writer on the same slip began thus. She was younger in the years of the Eldar than her brethren, for she awoke in Valinor, not upon Middle-earth. Changed to, uh, awoke in Valinor after the making of the Silmarils, and even as the first shadow fell upon the Blessed Realm. And when she was grown to full stature... The words, she was younger in the years of the Eldar than her brethren, for she awoke in Valinor, not upon Middle-earth, are not in accord with the annals of Amon, where Fingolfin, their father, was himself born in Amon, right? Remember, of course, Feanor, when the annals, Feanor was the first, second-generation elf of all, uh, and he was born in Middle-earth, but the rest of them were born uh, in uh, Valinor. Anyway, to me, the... Um, uh, the most interesting... I mean, yes, that's interesting that he's revising when they were born and stuff. But notice the status that he's giving to Isfin here. Not just about her being younger. Okay, great, cool. So she's younger. That's fine. Um, and even as the first shadow fell upon the Blessed Realm, and when she was grown to full stature, right? So um, the... Um, uh, he he makes her birth have a kind of mythic significance to it. See what I mean? Um, he draws attention to her birth, not just because he's trying to log it, right? Uh, you know, and 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 you know, he's not writing annals anymore. Remember, this is this is Nequenta. Um She's born after the making of the Silmarils. She's born even as the first shadow fell upon the blessed realm, right? She's, do you see what I mean? By saying like her life, her birth is being given a kind of mythic significance itself. This doesn't necessarily make her, doesn't necessarily prove that she's a super important character in herself, like as far as what she accomplished, what she accomplishes, but it gives her significance. And so Jennifer absolutely, it does I think, contextualize for us some of the stuff that's going to happen in her story, right? Her restlessness. Um, Jennifer, as we can see, right? 
she is being associated from her birth here, in the, at least in this moment in Tolkien's imagination, she is being associated with the restlessness, with the unrest of the Noldor, right? Um, she is, in this sense, a child of the decline of Valinor, a product of the decline of Valinor. She never saw the noontide of Valinor. Um, uh, there is, she is associated with the rise of shadow from the beginning. Uh, the rise of the shadow and the, 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 the descent of the shadow upon the blessed realm. Again, it's, it's, just, it's interesting to me. Um, I'm, again, I'm not trying to claim that he's making her character really important, right? But it didn't have to be her. It didn't have to be her, right? Um, he has chosen her character he is paying much more attention to her. He has made her sort of the pivot point, right? Not because she is the one doing the, um, uh, doing the actions, right? Um, and it makes me wonder, um, it makes me wonder here. I will, I will ask the question and I'm not hundred percent sure what the answer is, but I will ask the question that I couldn't help but, find myself asking as I was noticing the stuff I was just pointing out about the, the, the women, the female Noldor. Is Tolkien, do we have reason to think that in this time, in the 50s, Tolkien is actively working to increase the profile of his female characters in the Silmarillion? Obviously, there are some female characters like Luthien, uh, at the top of the list, who have been hugely important from the beginning, right? Um, but is there an impulse on Tolkien's part that we can see? Right? Is there a trend within these revisions towards the self-conscious elevation, inclusion of females who are completely omitted, the elevation of females who are there but didn't get a really prominent role? This smells like that to me, right? That he is, he's not inventing Isfin from scratch. He's not even inventing the Aeol story with her from scratch. Again, the, 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 the building blocks of that were already there, uh, unless I'm totally misremembering. I'm pretty sure they're there uh, from earlier on. Um, but he is pausing here. In the edition, in this, the two drafts of this edition, we can see him lending her a kind of significance, a kind of significance which raises her profile pretty significantly, not just the add-on sister of the list, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, I don't know. No, Jocelyn, so this would be... Um, this can't be a response to criticism, at least not criticism, like public criticism. Because uh, remember, this is still happening before the publication of The Lord of the Rings. Um, okay, so there aren't any female characters. Well, there's only one female character in The Hobbit, not counting Belladonna Took, who is dead, right? So there's only there's one posthumous female character in The Hobbit. Quiz. Trivia question. Who's the female character in The Hobbit? Anybody name the female character in The Hobbit? Mm. 
Nope. Female who appears. Actually appears in the action. Interacts with the characters. Nope. Lobelia, Lobelia uh, doesn't... We, we hear about her, right? But uh, she doesn't interact with anybody. Yana, you've got it. James Lieback has it too. The spider that Bilbo kills with Sting when he names the sword, right? And he wakes up and there's a spider and he kills it. Female. There you go. So there you, I know that that doesn't really do much to please anybody who's discontented about the fact that there are no female characters in The Hobbit. But anyway, there you go. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yes, the last daughter of Shelob to trouble the unhappy forest, Arthur. That's it. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, in that way, she is, I, I do agree, a precursor of, uh, of, of Shelob. <laughs> no, uh, so, uh, uh, David Erbach is wondering if perhaps the spider, the conversation between the spiders that Bilbo overhears, uh, overhears would enable the Hobbit to pass the Bechdel test. I'm not really sure if, if that would count according to the rules, but you'd have to ask somebody, uh, who knows that more than I. Um, but, uh, anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, Anyhow, okay, um, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm digressing. Point is, I can't help but notice how in this, in that paragraph we were just reading, and notice how my second slide is kind of cheating, and I'm still talking about the same thing. Um, uh, how in this, uh, in that paragraph, he does seem to be, he's lingering on the two women out of the ten in the list, right? He's not changed the list, um, except for adding Galadriel. Um, but he is noticeably lingering on the two women. And this edition in particular, the one that doesn't make the cut, right? The rejected first impulse shows, I think, especially if we take this passage about the, even as the first shadow fell upon the blessed realm stuff, right? And the reference to Galadriel's hair and it being like a Silmaril. Um, he is not only saying something about the women, right? He's not, these are, this, these are not token statements about the women. Um, he is developing them, their significance within the native mythology of the Silmarillion. Notice what he's also doing, right? What he's also um, resisting, right? Is displacing anybody. He's not, Tolkien does not seem willing, in general, uh, to ch he doesn't like to change the core elements of his mythology that were already there, as we've seen in other contexts, right? So he's not going to take one of the major characters, like Fingolfin, or Finrod, Felagund, or Turgon, right, uh, and make them female. We're not going to see him do that, exactly. Um, but Nevertheless, I, so he, the eight men are still all there, right? Um, he doesn't cut any of the men. He doesn't replace them with women. Um, but I, we, I think we can see at least anyway, data point number one of possibly him, uh, 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 dedicating some, uh, um, uh, some more time than they got in any of the earlier versions. Um, uh, yeah, 
Yeah, and I certainly agree, Lynn, that although women don't take up many pages, they are often significant characters. And I would say, even Lynn, we can see that same pattern being reflected here, right? Again, he's not uh, he's not balancing the scales numerically. He's not made any changes there at all. Again, apart from the addition of Galadriel, um, but. Uh, uh, but certainly, again, you look at that passage and it's way more than 80 or 20 percent of that prose right, is dedicated to the women. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway. OK. Oh, Christopher says it's an interesting precursor to the you know who uh, uh, character who may not be mentioned. You're not talking about Toriel, are you? Um, this is why, by the way, I never objected to Toriel as a concept, as a character. I, yeah, anyway, but um, uh, yeah, anyway, we'll see. We'll keep going. We, I, I love Christopher's note on Galadriel's name. Here Galadriel enters the Quenta tradition. This is his footnote on that paragraph, too. Uh, for Galadriel in the Annals of Amon, uh, see that other passage that we already talked about, the one about her that I already mentioned about her response to Fanor's speech. On one copy of LQ2, that is the later Quenta two manuscript, my or typescript rather, my father noted in High Elvish her name was Altariella, Altariella, Lady with Garland of Sunlight. Galata Rig L equals Cinderin Galadriel. It was thus mere accident that her name resembled Galav, Sylvan Galad tree. So this is Christopher pointing out that although Galadriel lives among the Galathrim, that is a coincidence, linguistically speaking, right? Um, okay. <laughs> I suppose I'm willing to believe that. Look, it certainly wouldn't be the first time that that, uh, 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 that, that kind of thing... Um, uh, that that kind of thing happened, right? Um, when Tolkien, who thinks first and foremost in terms of etymologies and the development of words, right, um, that he is able to um, come up with a name or a word which looks like it has an obvious explanation, but of course has in fact not anything to do with it. Like how, of course, like Tyrion upon Tuna has nothing to do with fish. Um, but I, anyway, um, I, but I'm not sure I believe this at all, um, to be totally honest with you. Uh, when we're, again, when we're interest, when we're introduced to Galadriel of the Galathrim, <laughs> kind of, I mean, all right, like, you know, it kind of looks like a duck and cracks like a duck at that point right now. Retroactively, he is changing that, right? Um, he has developed a new, uh, and again, and this is such a very Tolkien thing to do, right? He's got Galadriel's name and he's gonna, um, he's gonna, there's an element now of her character that he is developing, that he's focusing on, right? Namely her hair, like that's become a big deal. Now, retroactively, it's become a big deal, right? So he has developed a new, name for her, a new etymology for her name to explain it. And it has no longer anything to do with the Galathrim. She's no longer the queen of the tree elves, which was the whole point of her character when her character was, was invented at the very beginning. Um, 
when we met her, when he met her, right, in The Lord of the Rings. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but, of course, Tony, you're absolutely right. This is a very Tolkien thing. Uh, Tony Mead is pointing out, this is one of his favorite Tolkien linguistic moments, uh, when he makes light and tree cognates, right? And I agree. It's awesome, right? Notice how in doing that, right, in connecting her name, in, in, in at least articulating, if not changing, right, the uh, etymology of her name to connect her to light, right, to sunlight, um, and saying it's only an accident that her name happens to resemble the word for tree, we get the mythic significance of her hair, right? Baked into the entire linguistic situation. And that's awesome, right? That is super cool. Um, and um, yeah, exactly, uh, David. The Galathrim means tree people. Yeah, exactly. Um, and of course, he spelled her name originally with the DH, Galadriel. Um, the the Galadriel, Queen of the Galathrim, uh, was her name. And <laughs> if you insist that that was a pure coincidence at the time when he came up with it, I, I'll only say with Gaffer Gamgee, it takes a lot of believing, right? Um, and in any case, I don't think it's a big deal. I, 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 I see no reason not to believe that he is retroactively changing the etymology of her name. Why shouldn't he, right? And that he's doing it in such a way to make this really elegant, elegant linguistic, uh, like philological pun um, on like how her name evokes the two trees and doubling down on the whole Goadriel as living Silmaril thing. I mean, come on, that's awesome, right? And the fact that that wasn't what he was thinking at the beginning does not decrease that in my mind at all. Um, I think it's uh, it's pretty awesome. Um, yeah, and Brian, you're right. You do lose the sense that her people take their name from her, right? Um, but perhaps they too appreciate the um, like she is to them. She is like Laurelin to them, right? She is their tree of light, right? Um, uh, and they. They are like the mini Calaquendi, right? Who are elevated by being in the presence of the light of their own tree of light, right? Um, so is their name still connected with her name? Yeah, in a sense, but a cooler sense, right? A really interesting sense. Um, but um, anyway, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, 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 Hawthorne is uh, saying he can easily see it being a, a coincidence um, uh, as the roots appear to date back to pre-Lord of the Rings Elvish. Yeah, these do, sure. Um, but it, anyway, yeah, no, I, it's possible. Again, I don't I don't think it's utterly impossible. Um, but, uh, but again, to me, that's not the point, right? Whether or not it was in his original conception, who cares? What's really interesting is the way that this is, just like how the story is developing, right? We don't have to you know, hold him to the first version of the story. What we're interested in is how is the story growing in his mind? And if that's what's happening here, cool. If not, that's cool too. Um, but um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, 
Yeah, Christopher, maybe it is like the naming of Alessar by his people, uh, not who didn't know that that was his name foretold, right? Who knows? Maybe that was exactly it. Okay. Uh, more on the philological subject. Um, you will remember, of course, uh, we were talking about the Hlamas a little bit, I think, last week as well, right? The, uh, the philological origins of uh, so many of the stories and how we can see that stuff growing. Um, this was one of my favorite moments where we can still hear that in the background, right? The first, uh, the first of the things he's talking about here concerns the sentence for nigh on 100 of the years of Valinor which were each as 10 years of the years of the sun that were after made. That is describing the number of years in which the Teleri lived on uh, Toleresia on the way. Remember when they're, 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 they're on the island and they, it, get, it gets stuck in traffic, right, in the Bay of Eldemar, and they don't make it all the way to Valinor, right? And so how long did they live there before they went on and set up Al in, at Alqualande, right? And so in the first draft... He had said nigh on 100 of the years of Valinor, reminding us when he said that, that that's in fact a thousand years of the sun that they lived there on Toleresia before they got to the mainland. Uh, and here the following was substituted. For well nigh 100 of the years of our time, though that be but 10 of the years of the Valar, they dwelt in Toleresia. Christopher says, the reduction of the time during which the Teleri dwelt apart in Toleresia from a thousand to one hundred years of the sun was clearly made for linguistic reasons. A thousand years would introduce such changes as to make the tongues of the Noldor a, a people, in any case, changeful in speech, we were told, and the Teleri into different languages, which could not conceivably draw together again as they are going to do. In a, we're, going to told, we're going to be told that they're going to do in a couple paragraphs. In the Annals of Amman, the lost reckoning of only uh, the lost reckoning of only 100 years of the sun is present. Okay, um, just sort of a note: this stuff is still in the background, right? We, I think we have uh, we have passed the point where the linguistic situation, although I absolutely, you know, believe and can and can see, and this is one of the things that I had a. Uh, uh, most fun talking about when we were reading the Hamas back in uh, The Lost Road. Um, we can see how the whole shape of his mythology, the whole sort of progress of the First Age uh, is foreshadowed or sort of uh, it's, it's, or rather is all a later embodiment of the, of the different linguistic situations that he was imagining in his tree of tongues, right? In his imagining his, his imagined development and, you know, bifurcations and cross uh, influencings and everything else of the Elvish tongues. Um, but I think that we've, we've passed the point where those are the reasons that those are the things that are driving the stories. The stories have taken on a life of their own now. Right. Um, and we can see them. But yet they've not forgotten it completely. And so his impulse here was to say and to spell out for a thousand years. They are apart. But then he gets twitchy. Right. And he's like, mm, yeah, no, no, it can't be a thousand years, because if it were a thousand years, there would be too much. You know, that that doesn't fit the linguistic situation. So he's not willing to leave it. Right. He's not willing to change. You know, so he, he still wants to sort of maintain the anchor in the basic linguistic situation, which has informed the whole stories and, of course, still 
uh, plays a part in the you know the names of people and the languages as they occur and emerge within the stories. Um, all that stuff is still operative, right? Uh, uh, and so we can see it still being operative. But again, I don't think that it exactly um, uh, it, it exactly drives the story. Now, Tomas, that's a very sensible question, uh, and I think that. Uh, I mean, it's definitely something that I'm thinking of, too. That is, would language evolve just as quickly in a society of long-lived folk as compared to mortal men's? Don't most language changes happen between generations? Um, An excellent question. It would be easy for me to imagine um, a linguistic situation that is much more static because, um, uh, because you've got an immortal race of people, right? Um, so people get, you know, kind of like people, you know, imagining elves as being sort of like those folks who move to a different part of the country or move to a different country, but still 30 years later still have their original accent, right? You know, they have not acclimated their accent to the place where they live. Um, would elves kind of be like that, except in millennia, right? Rather than in, um, in decades. Um, uh, one, as, I, as I say, Tomas, I can easily imagine that, right? I can easily imagine that that would be. But that's not how Tolkien imagined it, right? Tolkien definitely didn't imagine that way. He, um, part of his core mythology is the, the fecundity of the imagination, of the subcreation of the elves, right? Um, he is not, I think intending to suggest that immort- like if you took people in our world, made them immortal, right, and took linguistic notes, I don't think this is him predicting that this is what would happen. Rather, again, it's part of his mythology. It's part of his story that the languages of these people do change, right? And why do they change? Because it is an expression of their subcreation, the language of the Noldor is changeable, not due to any external influence. I mean, it can be due to an external influence, but just because they themselves are always changing it, <coughs> they're always refining it, they're always developing new ways and new ways of speaking about things. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. Um, so um, it is just it, it, it is an interesting I don't think that this is Tolkien making, as I say, a, a general note about how languages do, in fact, change. Rather, it is a testimony to how the changefulness of language forms a central part of his mythology. And. And I would say this before I end uh, on this subject. Um, I think it might work the other way around. That is, I was just suggesting that it makes sense that the Noldor are changeful in their speech because they are subcreative, right? Because of the fecundity of their imagination. Um, but in fact, I think if there's going to be a because statement made about that, it should go the other way around, right? Tolkien's mythology of the elves 
has as one of its cornerstones the fundamentally sub-creative nature of the elves. Um, because he envisions the languages ritually changing and developing over time, right? I suspect that the cause and effect works the other way around, right? Um, he first imagined a situation in which you have uh, that, remember, in a sense, Tolkien's elves are, historically speaking, an expression of his, his language. He first invents a language, languages, and develops a history for those languages and how those languages change over time. And he makes them dynamic because the changing of the language over time is what he's most interested in. That's what he loves. That's, that's, that's the hobby, right? Um, so he, he invents these changeful and, uh, you know, sort of interlocking uh, languages. And he needs, so that's what he has. That's what he starts with. So he needs a character that fits that, right? He needs a people. He has the languages and he needs to give them a people. And he needs to give them a people that fit them and that fit the kind of linguistic situation that he has designed. So, yeah, I kind of suspect that the elves are sub-creators fundamentally in the way that they are. Um, some of that might be due to theology, but I think the, the whole being made in the image of a maker thing, as you know, he uh, uh, said very famously elsewhere in his poem... But um, I, but I think some of it also is based on has its birth in the linguistic situation here. Um, yeah, exactly, Brie. Uh, uh, Bri, it's exactly like that. Brie says uh, uh, them actively altering their language rather than just having their language passively altered over time makes sense, especially when thinking of how how much an artist's individual style will change over time. Exactly. Exactly. When an artist is very active, right, um, uh, uh, refining his or her art, right, it's, it's, it can't stay exactly the same, right? It's how it works. Um, and so, again, that's the character of the race that fits the language situation that he had developed, right? So it makes, it makes a lot of sense. Um, but anyway, so like I said... When thinking about the relationship between his stories and his languages, we often have to remember back that way. Like a lot of the because statements go from the language to the story, not the other way around. Even the most basic things like why elves, right? Even that uh, goes back, I think, first and foremost to the languages. But by this time, by the early 50s, I don't think any longer it is... 100% driving the story. The stories are taking on lives of their own. The stories and the characters are taking on lives of their own. But again, he's not forgetting the linguistic situation, and he's not going to simply abandon it entirely, even though he's willing to make some fairly significant changes. Like, for instance, you may remember that the elves who have become the green elves of Osirian, right? That other separate group of elves who comes across the mountains later on, later than everybody else, uh, and parks relatively near Doriath, right? Um, that story way back at the beginning in the Hlamas, right, uh, was, that's one of those stories which is most clearly established uh, in the Tree of Tongues uh, that he set up, but they were Noldor originally, 
right? And that was an important element that this was, uh, it was a separate Noldor population, uh, which separated from the other Noldor and then were recombined with others in various ways. Um, So he's changed that. And that might seem, from a a plot basis, it might not seem like a big deal to say that the Green Elves are, you know, uh, a subset of the Teleri rather than a subset of the Noldor. But from a linguistic standpoint, that's a huge deal, right? He's made a big change there in doing that. Um, But uh, anyway, so... He's still revising in some ways, but but he's not going to forget it entirely. And I, I love little reminders like this. Okay. Bird and Miriel. Uh, in that time was born in Eldamar in the house of the king, in Tyrion upon the crown of Tuna, Feanor, the eldest of the sons of Finway, and the most beloved. Miriel was the name of his mother. Silver was her hair, and dark were her eyes, but her hands were more skilled to fineness than any hands, even of the Noldor. By her was the craft of needles devised, and were but one fragment of the broideries of Muriel to be seen in Middle-earth, it would be held dearer than a king's realm, for the richness of her devices and the fire of their colors were as manifold and as bright as the glory of leaf and flower and wings in the fields of Yavanna. Therefore... She was named Muriel Serenda. Okay. Um, so, several things here. First, we'll get back to Muriel, right? Uh, I'm still not without, not entirely without hope, though I've uh, digressed so long about some of these other things that uh, uh, maybe, um, uh, maybe we'll, um, uh, we'll not get to what I wanted to talk about in phase two. But anyway, um, we'll have a lot more to say about Muriel in phase two. Uh, And uh, I I can't even. But notice, right? Notice that, um, notice how much time he's taking here. Here's, uh, Here's my data point number two, if the other ones count as one. Here's my data point number two about Tolkien pausing and investing a significant amount of sub-creative energy here in developing one of his female characters, right? Feanor's mom was important because she was Feanor's mom, right? But this, this is new. This is a big deal, right? She invent. she doesn't just do embroidery. She invented embroidery, right? Her hands were more skilled to fineness than any hands even of the Noldor. Because remember the significance of that sentence. Because the Noldor were more skilled to fineness than Aule, right? The Valar themselves were came in second to the Noldor. We were ta- remember that? That was in one of the paragraphs back in, I think, the Annals, maybe? Um, either the Annals or, the, or the, the, the Quenta earlier on, right? And she is the greatest of them, right? Um, uh, that's... Uh, that's... Amazing, right? Uh, so again, so she is being given. This is a in con- so like saying, and she was the best embroiderer ever. Might sound like a pretty wussy attempt to like break gender stereotypes, right? Um, but in context, this is a huge deal, right? Like if we can, it's if it's you know, yes, this is a big deal. Um, so that's. I mean, if were but one fragment of the broideries of Muriel to be seen in Middle-earth, it would be held dearer than a king's realm? My goodness, right? 
this is a big this is this is a big deal okay um i would point out silver was her hair and dark were her eyes is a big deal you know um what are fingolfin's what's fingolfin's eye color we don't know we've never been told right we've never been told anything about that um in other words we see him pausing to imagine her um in a new way here even the fact uh that she is being given not only the name Miriel Serinda but Burda Miriel that is the name Serinda translated into Anglo-Saxon right Alfwina is clearly um uh Alfwina is clearly impressed by Muriel as well, right? So again, even kind of within the context of the frame, um, even within the context of the frame, Muriel is is having emphasis put, laid upon her, right? Like, we don't get Anglo-Saxon translations of the titles of most of the rest of the characters. Very few of the boys have Anglo-Saxon translations of their names, right? But Muriel gets one. So again, it's um, another little interesting point. Now, like I said... We'll have much more to say about Muriel later on, but not quite yet. Let's keep going. All right. More on Feanor. And Feanor grew swiftly, as if a secret fire were kindled within him, and he was tall and fair of face and masterful, and he became of all the Noldor the most subtle of heart and of mind and the most skilled of hand. He it was that in his youth, bettering the work of Rumil, made those letters which bear his name, and which ever since the Eldar have used. Yet this was the least of his works, for he it was that first of the Noldor discovered how gems greater and brighter than those of the earth might be made with skill. And the first gems that Feanor devised were white and colorless, but being set under starlight, they would blaze with blue and white fires brighter than Helwyn. And other crystals he made, wherein things far away could be seen small but clear, as with the eyes of the eagles of Manwe. Seldom were the hand and mind of Feanor at rest. Um, okay. Uh, so first, of course, we, we see, you know, the prodigality with which the superlatives are, are, are bestowed upon Feanor. But um, remember the gem business? Gems were important earlier on, and you remember that, right? Um, that in the older versions of the story... Even up through 1937, um, not just back in the Book of Lost Tales, but back in the 1937 Quenta, the Noldor invented gems, right? Gems were manufactured, right? Gems were manufactured, and, uh, and it was the Noldor who invented them. And so the Silmarils were the greatest of these very characteristically Noldoran inventions, which were gems. But, of course, you will then remember, and Christopher drew attention to it, that in this later version, in the Annals of Amon, and I believe again in the Quenta um, uh, revision, he, uh, uh, Tolkien has the Noldor mining the gems. They were the first ones to, like, discover and cut gems. They didn't make them, right? Um, uh, so notice for a second here. In the now, this it was all we always knew the Silmarils were coming anyway, even after they were mining them. But notice the place that this gives to so the first point that I will make, and I won't make a huge big deal of it, but I think it's an interesting thing is that 
Yes, it's true that, as we observed before, the changing of the Noldor from uh, inventors of gems to miners of gems is part uh, seems to fit within the context of Tolkien making the mythology work more within the consistent world, right? N- doing less of the mythology of origin and more of the, you know, like, that is, gems are elf stones made by elves, right? Remnants of elvish stuff, right? Uh, less of that kind of myth, which doesn't really hold together even with the other stories in the old Silmarillion, um, necessarily. And because uh, uh, there are lots of gems that aren't invented by Noldor, uh, like the dwarves have gems which they didn't get from the Noldor. Whatever. Anyway, point. Okay. So, uh, in that way, the story is holding together better and it works better. But also notice there is a secondary consequence of that change, and that is the even increasing elevation of the Silmarils and of Feanor. Right? No, the Noldor don't invent gems, but Feanor kind of does. Right? Feanor does invent gems. So he has not... The um, Noldor invented gems. If they got into his drawer, right, into his cut material drawer, they didn't stay there very long, right? Not just because the Silmarils were never going in the drawer, but because um, uh, he's still setting up the Silmarils with these other gems that Feanor created, right? So they... The effect is not to remove, the result, I should say, is not to remove invented gems entirely from his mythology, but instead to make them almost, in a sense, one of um, uh, one of Feanor's inventions, right? Um, and, um, yeah. So, yes. Um, so that's one interesting point. But yes, in response to the comments that several of you are making, and I'm sorry, I should have commented on this first before I started talking about gem invention. Uh, Other crystals he made wherein things far away could be seen small but clear as with the eyes of the eagles of Manway. Does that sound familiar? Yes. Yes, it should. This, I do believe, is uh, Tolkien retconning the Palantiri for the first time. This is the Palantiri's first appearance in the Silmarillion tradition. Um, yes, absolutely. Um, and James, thank you for quoting that because I was thinking of that exact same thing as well. I believe that not only is he retconning the Palantiri into the Silmarillion tradition, he is almost, this is a, this is a, like a slant quotation of the Lord of the Rings. Seldom were the hand and mind of Feanor at rest. Uh, James and I were both recalling Gandalf's reference to when Gandalf is explaining to Pippin about the Palantiri, right? Um, and speculating, Gandalf speculating uh, there with on, you know, Shadowfax back, right? With Pippin speculating that uh, Feanor himself wrought them in the deeps of time, perhaps, right? Um, Gandalf refers to the unimaginable hand and mind of Feanor at their work, Right. So seldom were the hand and mind of Feanor at rest. Um, yes, yeah, I, I, that is a, an almost quotation of Gandalf's line there, right? So when he's explaining the Palantiri, Gandalf is explaining the Palantiri and speculating that Feanor made them. So 
is Tolkien thinking about the Palantiri here? I'm going with yes, definitely, right? Because again, it's it's almost a quotation. So, um, uh, Zach, were the Palantiri always suggested to be Feanorian from the beginning in the Lord of the Rings? No, no, they weren't. Uh, they were Numenorian. Um, but then the question about like where the Numenorians got them, kind of, it, I, I, I don't remember exactly, Zach, when that line from Gandalf, the Feanorian attribution, when exactly it enters in to the drafts, whether that was very early or very late. Um, but the seeing stone, they were primarily the seeing stones of Gondor, born from across the sea. They were like Numenorian relics, right? Um, that they get connected back to, again, I don't remember at what point, but it's, I mean, but it's there, right? It's in, it's in the Lord of the Rings text. So whether it was early or late in his process about them, but I, I don't remember for sure, but I'm guessing late. If I had to, if I had to make a bet, I would bet on late in the development. Might be wrong, but that's what I would, that's what I would bet on. Um, but anyway, here he is here. This is now influencing his thoughts. So, the idea of Feanor now, we not only have the Silmarils, we have the Palantiri, um, and therefore Feanor as preeminent inventor, right? He didn't invent gems entirely, um, but he improved them, right? Uh, he invented better gems, uh, and of course, ultimately, uh, the Palantiri as well, and obviously, ultimately, the Silmarils. Um, okay. It is told also that at this time Melkor would speak to the Eldar of weapons and armor, and of the power that they gave to him that is armed to defend his own, as he said. The Eldar had before possessed no weapons, and since the chaining of Melkor the armories of the gods had been shut. But the Noldor now learned the fashioning of swords of tempered steel, and the making of bows and of arrows and of spears, and they made shields in those days and emblazoned them with devices of silver and gold and gems. Thus it was that the Noldor were armed in the days of their flight. Thus, too, as oft was seen, the evil of Melkor was turned against him, for the swords of the gnomes did him more hurt than anything under the gods upon the earth, upon this earth. Yet they had little joy of Melkor's teaching, for all the sorrows of the gnomes they wrought with their own swords, as later shall be seen, quoth Pengalod. Okay, so we get Pengaloth's uh, 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 little attribution there at the end. Um, okay, so... A couple issues here. Yeah, that issue, that image, Nancy, of the armories of the gods is very striking, right? Yes, there's a stockpile of weapons held under lock and key, and the elves never see them, right? The elves don't even know that there's a secret armory of the Valar. They went to war before, so they've got weapons, right? Um, but they've locked them away, right? Um, <clears throat> you know, in like the gun safe of the Valar uh, so that the kids don't get access to the weapons and aren't influenced by that. Um, but they um, uh, but they exist, right? Um, Francis, yeah, I'm not... I mean... Some of the weapons of the Valar are alluded to, at least indirectly. Orame, right, is a hunter, and most people don't hunt with their bare hands, right? Um, this, of course, um, 
leads. I mean, Tolkis does Nancy, but even the fact that Tolkis, like it's emphasized that Tolkis fights with his bare hands suggests that there's, um, that it's odd. Right. So, um, so yeah. Um, one thing I don't get here, the making of bows and of arrows and of spears. What did Kelegorm hunt with before this? Right? I mean, uh, Arathel, excuse me, I mean Isfin, um, uh, excuse me, I mean Iriel, was hunting with the sons of Feanor who were hunting with Orome, right? How? What did they do? Throwing rocks, <laughs> maybe? Uh, slings? I, I, I don't know. I don't embroidery needles. Yeah, uh, I don't, I don't really get it. Um, see, no, I'd reject the idea that they were all hunting with their bare hands. Because again, if if everyone does things Tulkis style, then Tulkis is is uh, merely like the lead. No, no, they were riding horses, and they were, I think, using weapons. Um, uh, <laughs> lightsabers. <laughs> says John. Ah, uh, back in the old days. Yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> Matt suggests particularly harsh language, right? Yes, exactly. They were deploying their linguistic skills uh, aggressively and offensively um, <clears throat> against the beasts of the field. Well, they do have hounds, Stephen. We know they have hounds. Uh, so it's, of course, theoretically possible that the hunting that Kelogorm and Isfin are doing is nothing other than running after the hounds who do the killing themselves. That is conceivable that that's what's happening. Um, uh, that's, that's about the only weaponless hunting version I can think of. Um, but I, I don't know. I'm sorry. Orome has weapons and I can't imagine that Orome goes out hunting without weapons. I just, yeah, no, I, I don't, I don't see that. Um, now, I think that Tolkien is going to shift from this uh, and make a bigger deal of the... He's already making a big deal of the swords, right? Um, but I think even a more... Um, uh, he's going to shift away from the idea that this... Uh, this slightly short-sighted idea that they didn't have bows or arrows or spears. Um, but anyway... Um, but here's the main point. I love that later sentence about um, thus too, as oft was seen, the evil of Melkor was turned against him, right? How um, the way in which the weapons making at Melkor's instigation, right? The weapons making of the Noldor is um, the source of their own sorrow, right? And the, the, is at the root of their own tragedy. And yet also... Uh, did Morgoth no favors either, right? Um, I really love that uh, that that sentence. Um, it is possible, Stephen, that they had bows and spears of a sort before, but these are different in some way, right? Because, I mean, goodness knows there is a difference between a hunting spear and a spear that you would use in war, either like a lance that you would use from horseback or a pike that you would use 
as a foot soldier, right? Neither one of those weapons is exactly the same as a weapon that you use to hunt. Um, uh, nor are the war bows uh, going to be very, you know, closely akin uh, to the bows that they would likely have been used to hunt. So it is possible, Stephen, that we could kind of take it in that direction to say that... Um, uh, just as they learned the fashioning of swords, swords of tempered steel, so the making of bows and of arrows and of spears also in the kind of of the tempered steel sort of variety uh, are what we're talking about. Um, yeah. <laughs> Arthur, I'm not sure that there was a hunter named Tin Fang Warbow, but there should be. There really should be. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You're so, so very right about that. Okay. Um, of these lies, quarrels were born among the proud children of Finway, and of these quarrels came the end of the high days in Valinor. There's quarrels between Fingolfin and Feanor, uh, and the evening of its ancient glory. For Feanor spake words of rebellion against the Valar, crying aloud that he would depart from Valinor back to the world without, and deliver, as he said, the gnomes from thraldom if they would follow him. And when Fingolfin sought to restrain him, Feanor drew his sword upon him for the lies of Melkor, though he knew not clearly their source, had taken root in the pride of his heart. Um, this shift, uh, this development of the story of the drawing of weapons, uh, you know, Feanor drawing his sword on Fingolfin, this is an, imp uh, this is an important moment. Um, but... Um, uh, Yes, Stephen, I was thinking that Tinfang Warbo sounds like a really good Lotro character name. Absolutely. Um, but um, uh, anyway, okay. So, um, but the fact that he has shifted the rebellion of Feanor to this moment, right? He's taking the things that Feanor used to say in the past and will again in the future say only at the, the speech by Torchlight. Right. Only after the, the 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 destruction and the actual departure of the Noldor, he has Feanor kind of, uh, you know, totally blowing his top here um, toward, with a rebellion towards the towards the Valar much earlier on. Right. Um, the thing that's most interesting to me about that is. He's take he is is the, the elevation of this moment. Right. He is taking the rebellion of Feanor against the Valar and shifting it backwards from the time after the death of Finway and after the destruction of the trees all the way back to making it coincide with and sort of um, exacerbate uh, the drawing of the sword on Fingolfin. Right. Um, this would seem to be like the, the effect of this is to make the unrest of the Noldor and the rebellion of Feanor more closely tied to ultimately the kinslaying and the, the doom of uh, Mandos, right? Um, uh, tied to that more closely from the beginning. And it's an interesting move. I, I'm not, I, I, I think it's interesting the way that we see those two ideas being tied together here. Not sure in the end I'm a big fan uh, of this shift, and apparently Tolkien wasn't either because he changes it back uh, after this. Uh, but I do think that that's interesting. Um, okay, and then more on the Orkor. I try not to take too long on this, but it's a reference, so we needed to talk about it. 
He brought into being the race of the Orkor, and they grew and multiplied in the bowels of the earth. These creatures Morgoth made in envy and mockery of the elves. Therefore, in form, they were like unto the children of Iluvatar, yet foul to look upon, for they were made in hatred, and with hatred they were filled. Their voices were as the clashing of stones, and they laughed not, save only at torment and cruel deeds. Glamhoth, the hosts of tumult, the Noldor called them. Notice how that paragraph is entirely consistent with manufactured orcs, right? Footnote, footnote to the Orkor. He brought into being the race of the Orkor. Footnote, in Gnomish speech, this name is Ork, O-R-C-H, of one, Irk, of many. Orcs, we may name them, we Anglo-Saxons, right? For in the ancient days they were strong and fell as demons, yet they were of other kind, a spawn of earth corrupted by the power of Morgoth, and they could be slain or destroyed by the valiant, quoth Alfwina. Okay, uh, so... Um, this looks like backward movement, right? Not only is both the footnote, and now remember that the last time we saw this passage in the annals, um, I think it was in the annals. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to keep track. Uh, but anyway, the last time we saw this passage, he went, ha- he went, he did like a partly, partly thing, right? The body of the text was consistent with manufactured orcs, but the note, the quoth Alfwina, quoth, the quoth Pengaloth, quoth Alfwina note, um, was explicitly stating uh, the teaching of the wise that evil cannot create, right? Uh, and so that they must have been corrupted instead. He's gone, it would seem backwards from that here. This whole passage is consistent with manufactured orcs, both the note and the main text. He says they're like unto the children of Iluvatar. He calls them spawn of earth corrupted by the power of Morgoth. But spawn of earth? Where else has he called the elves the spawn of earth? Right? That's not a very elvish kind of thing. Right? Um... Uh, so that does not sound to me like, I mean, uh, Christopher, in his notes, seemed to be holding open the possibility that Spawn of Earth corrupted by the power of Morgoth meant that they were elves or, you know, was evidence that he was st- that Tolkien was still thinking in that way in this passage. But to me, that seems pretty weak, honestly. Um, if he were to say that, he said that much more overtly before to call them instead. Of sp- this seems like, if anything, a kind of a halfway position. Right. He's opening up the possibility. Is, so is this possibly the whole spawn of Earth corrupted by the power of Morgoth? Does that suggest that he's trying to think of a middle ground between the elf position, the corrupted elf position and the man, manuf- the orcs from scratch, the orcs as constructs position? Um, is he trying to imagine an intermediary case in which they they've not been constructed from scratch? So the the doctrinal position about evil not creating can you know he can still make his peace with Saint Augustine and yet have them not be elves and and thus avoid the free will problem and the do they go to Mandos when they die problem and all those other issues right um, uh, and you're right Arthur not only is it not a thing we've ever heard about elves that is them called spawn of Earth um, but it is hard to imagine an elf saying that or even Alfwina for that matter right. Um, 
again, Arthur, and that's the only defense I could see, is that this is a quoth Alfwina passage, right? So Alfwina, and Alfwina is explicitly talking about translating into Anglo-Saxon concepts here with the orc demon thing, right? So could he, that is Alfwina, be using spawn of earth, not because that's an elvish phrase, even though that's, so he's talking about elves, but he's talking about them in a different way because he's trying to, he's, he's putting it in, the, in terms that the, his Anglo-Saxon audience would understand, right? Um, so thinking of, I, I mean, you could almost go in, a, in a, a Genesis 6 kind of direction here, right? The, the sons of God and the daughters of men sort of thing. Right. Saying like spawn of earth in the sense of like, no, like meaning, you know, uh, incarnate races rather than divine beings. Right. Or something. Right. I, I don't know. So, again, maybe in some sense he's appealing to a cat to not to Elvish categories, but to Anglo-Saxon categories. I don't know. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, Yana, conceivably, of course, you could imagine that spawn of earth, they could potentially be corrupted dwarves who are connected with stone, at least, if not earth. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Um, honestly, this passage does not seem to me to suggest that Tolkien has a very clear clear idea at all, right, about, um, uh, about what he's um, uh, imagining here, right? Um, but kind of opening the door vaguely to um, uh, some other solution, right? Um, could they be animals corrupted? That could avoid the free will problem? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, anyway. Okay, we're just about out of time, but I'm also out of phase one. Uh, so let me at least glance into phase two, which is what I was really looking forward to getting to tonight. Um, and so here I am being pokey as usual, but okay. Um, here's a quick note at the beginning of phase two. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll let you go soon. Just, just, just a touch of phase two. Indulge me. Um, thinking about the organization of the text as he revisits the Quintus Silmarillion here in uh, uh, in the late 50s now. It's years, but now the Lord of the Rings has been published and out, right? He's been thinking, he's been revising stuff about the, the, the Lord of the Rings for a while, but now he's coming back to the Silmarillion. It's time, to get, it's, it's time again to start getting the Silmarillion prepped for publication, right? So he's going back to the Quinta. Um, notice, by the way, he's going back to the Quinta. We haven't seen him going back to the Annals yet in exactly the same way, so that's interesting. Uh, but He's taken chapter one of the old Quenta and he's turned it into a separate thing called uh, the Valaquenta, right? Um, which is like, set aside like the Ainulindale. So we've got the Ainulindale as a freestanding thing. We have the Valaquenta as a freestanding thing and the Quenta Silmarillion, which follows it. So the structure of the published Silmarillion is emerging, you know, what we're familiar with, the Christopher's published Silmarillion. Uh, not Tolkien's theoretical published Silmarillion, uh, is, um, is emerging here, right? Uh, Christopher throws this off at the beginning, but there was a very interesting thing that I noticed here, and I think it, you will be able to guess the thing that I was most focused on here. 
Valaquenta 1 is headed like the preceding versions, Quenta Silmarillion. Here begins the Silmarillion, or the history of the Silmarils, part one of the Valar. Valaquenta 2, on the other hand, is headed Valaquenta. So he, the decision to change chapter one into the freestanding Valaquenta happens in the second version, the second typescript of the Valaquenta. Here, here is the account of the Valar and the Maiar according to the lore of the Eldar. That the original first chapter of the Silmarillion had become a separate entity, like the Ainulindale, is shown, apart from the new title, by the fact that to the final text of the next chapter of Valinor and the Two Trees, a title page, together with a page create, carrying the preamble, Alfwina's note, and the translator's note, was attached, and the chapter numbered one. Okay. Yes, I am, I am uh, interested in how the book was organized and his new conception of how the book was to be organized. That's kind of interesting. But of course, can you guess what I was most interested in here? In this late 50s version, as he is here in the, in the, in the, Vala, the, the Valaquenta 2 typescript, which is sort of a, a final text uh, for this version, what do we see? The frame still exists, right? Tolkien is still leaning on the frame. We talked before about how the frame still kind of creates problems, right? It's going to be hard to do the frame in the published Silmarillion because we don't any longer have the frame tale of Ariel like we did back in the Book of Oz. So who is this Alfwina dude? Who is this Pengaloth dude? Who, you know, how does, how does this all, under what circumstances is this text being transmitted to us? Uh, uh, is Bilbo involved, right? All of those questions are still unresolved, but Tolkien doesn't appear to care that they're still unresolved, right? Um, all of that frame stuff is still present. Tolkien has not taken the step to remove the frame elements at all. Very interesting to me. Um, now, it is very clear and Christopher makes it explicit that this second text of the Valaquenta is the text that the published Silmarillion is based on, right? And this is where we start getting into confessional mode and Christopher going through and, and pulling the curtain back and telling us all the decisions that he, the editorial decisions he made in the late 70s between his father's death and the publication of the Silmarillion and him giving us stuff that he cut from the original text, like all of that cutting room floor, those cutting room floor phrases and sentences. Oh, pitter pat my heart. I loved this section. This was great. And I was fascinated by Christopher's kind of confessional tone, right? It's very clear. This is now, you know, uh, and I'm, I'm forgetting. My copy of the text is not in arm's reach. What was the publication date? of Morgoth's Ring? When did it come out? I don't remember. 90s, right? Mid-90s? Thank you. 93. Appreciate that, James. Um, 1993. So this is, it's 20 years now since he started the project, essentially. 20 years after his father's death, he's publishing this, right? Um, so it's it's been a while, right? And he's now looking back and now, know, you know, having been spent the last 20 years immersed in his father's manuscripts. He now knows the situation much better. He clearly would do things differently if he were, you know, uh, editing the Silmarillion in 1993 compared to when he did it uh, in the, uh, in the mid seventies. Um, but, uh, but I agree, Lynn, it was, uh, it, it was, I found it delightful 
the kind of humility that Christopher Tolkien shows in this entire section was remarkable, I think, um, showing how he wanted to be true to his father's vision uh, and that he admits stuff that he hadn't that, that that he wishes he hadn't cut some stuff right love that we'll look at some example we won't look at all my examples because i'm out of time um but uh let's just do one let's just do one i'll let you go the history of the phrase with manway dwells varda uh the the silmarillion page 26 is curious that seems like an, an, an innocuous phrase right uh you know about manway and varda's cohabitation uh, the quintus silmarillion uh, that is the old Quinta, 1937 Quinta, has, with him dwells as wife Varda. By emendation to the later Quinta, so when he comes back to this in, 19, in, the, in, the, in the early 50s, it became, with him in Arda dwells as spouse Varda. Okay, so they cohabit, they cohabitate, but only here, in Arda, right? And in the Vala Quinta, it is, with Manwe now, dwells as spouse Varda. In 1975, when the main work on the text of the published Silmarillion was done, being then much clearer than I have since become about certain dates and textual relations, and ignorant of the existence of some texts, I did not see that this now could have any significance. And moreover, it contributed to the problem of tense in the Valaquenta, which is discussed below. I therefore omitted it. So, the text says, with Manway now dwells his spouse Varda. So here, you know, mid-70s, Christopher is looking at this saying, why now? With Manway now dwells his spouse Varda. Like, that it seems a little weird, right? Like, did they, like, they just, like, Manway and Varda just shacked up, right? That just happened? Like, you know, it seems a little odd, right? So he's like, okay, but it probably doesn't mean anything. And he's like, no, now I see it does mean something, Right. It is, however, undoubtedly significant. In the Annals of Amon, it is said Varda was Manway's spouse from the beginning, in contrast to the later union of Yavanna and Aule in Ea. But the typescript text of the Annals of Amon was amended to Varda was Manway's spouse from the beginning of Arda, which shows that some complex conception was present, though never definitively expressed, concerning the time of the union of the great spirits. So, in fact, the presence of the word now in the text which Christopher Tolkien cut, right, um, is gives us some information on one of those threads that we've been looking at, you know, one of those things that I've been interested in looking at, which is his conception of... Um, uh, his conception of the Valar and their relationship to the earth, right? The Valar's bodies and w what we've been looking at with the children of the Valar, for instance, right, is the kind of biggest, most flagrant example of how this concept of the relationship between the Valar and Ea, you know, and Arda is, is progressing, right? So he had originally said, remember we had been looking in the early Quinta at how he was... Um, crossing out wife all over the place and putting spouse instead and that he explained that he was doing this because he was only using the word spouse metaphorically like they're not literally husband and wife at the same time that he's deciding that they don't literally have children right um so he was distancing the valar from physical presence in the world right they're not incarnate in the world they don't have babies and they're not they're not literally 
husband and wife, right? But they are matched with each other. They are they do form these like very significant partnerships, right? Which are kind of understood sort of metaphorically, right, as marriages. Um, notice the extra element that is emphasized here with his use of the word now, right? Manwe and Varda were not partners from the beginning. They did not emerge from the mind of Iluvatar as partners. They are not, they were not, they've not been bound together. Um, Manwe and Varda did not start dating in the timeless halls, right? That's not how this happened. Um, their relationship is not primordial. It begins with Ea. It begins with the, when they become Valar, when they descend into Ea, that's when Manwe and Varda come. So Manwe and Varda are like founding partners, right? Um, their partnership is old, but it does not extend past. And that tells us something about how he is changing the concept of the Valar, right? Um, and that, I think, is, um, uh, is interesting, right? And shows us some, uh, some things about how, um, uh, how his concept of the Valar are changing. Um, this is as much as to say, although I was like a little bit interested in, you know, the very small fine changes that are going from draft to draft. I am finding every single confession that Christopher Tolkien makes about editorial changes that he made to the text of his own bat, right? The stuff that he himself added, that he admits that he added or that he admits that he cut and maybe shouldn't have. Every single one of those I found must read passages, right? So we're going to talk about a bunch of these because I was completely enamored. And then, oh my goodness, we didn't get to it tonight. Next week, the business about the the divorce. Holy cow, Finway and Muriel. Um, I was in stitches. I was literally rocking back and forth, cracking up, rereading the early stuff about the development of the Finway and Muriel. I just... Holy cow. So next week, join me next week for more uh, absolutely gripping, you know, uh, text editorial decisions uh, by Christopher Tolkien, uh, because this is a hot stuff. Um, And of course, we will get in from there into uh, uh, into the this the whole this this entire world building uh, moment right that uh, uh, that Tolkien begins to indulge in as he's uh, as he's revising so um, we're gonna do so I hope to get into the um, uh, blanking on the wording of the phrase the manners and and uh, culture of the elder I'm forgetting the name of it but uh, <laughs> yeah Michelle says tune in next week for real housewives <laughs> of Valinor <laughs> something like that yeah exactly um, but anyhow yeah so we'll we'll do that stuff uh, next week we'll start off with the editorial stuff and then we'll do uh, uh, the story of uh, uh, the the sordid history of of Furiel uh, sorry not Furiel she's she, she's good of Muriel and Finway um, and um, we will uh, and then we'll move on into the uh, laws and customs of the Eldar. Thank you, Marie. That's just the phrase I was blanking on there. The laws and customs of the Eldar. All right. 
Thank you very much. I'll see you guys next week. Good night now. The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org fund.